May I never lose the wonder, oh, the wonder of your mercy. May I sing your hallelujah, hallelujah, amen. Come on. May I never lose the wonder, oh, the wonder of your mercy. I sing your hallelujah, hallelujah, amen. Good morning, Mars Hill family. If you want to turn in your shed Bibles to page 1098, today our scripture is from 1 Timothy 4, and that is 1 through 8. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and will follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose conscience have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and those who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teachings that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales, Rather, train yourselves to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Mars Hill. The Lord be with you. Hey, if we haven't met, my name is Ashley. I'm one of our pastors here, and it's truly my joy to be worshiping alongside of you this morning. Um, just a brief bit of entertainment history for you to start. In 1956, a new TV show hit American screens. It was called To Tell the truth. Deb knows what I'm talking about. One person knows what I'm talking about. The show here, if you don't know it, the show would feature four celebrity panelists, including the late Betty White. And all these panelists were tasked with evaluating the answers of three people who would all claim to be a central character. This central character's unusual story was usually read aloud by the host. And the goal was for the panelists, the celebrity panelists, to identify who was telling the truth by ruling out 
the two imposters. I've watched a few episodes of this as study for today because a version of this show still streams in 2022. And you know what? I always like to think that I can tell who is lying. Not once have I gotten to an end of part of an episode and been like, you know what? I think I'm wrong. I think I picked the imposter, not the central character. I like to think that my ridiculousness radar is sharp. That I'm a good people reader, that I have strong gut feelings, particularly after coffee. I like to think that I would be the one who could identify the imposter, flag down the phony, and find the fake. Do you do the same? Would you be the same as me? You think you know how to read people. But my question for the panelists is the same question I have for us this morning, Mars Hill. How can you tell? How can you tell? How could you tell the difference? Would you study the imposter's mannerisms? Is it in how quickly they respond or the inflections in their voice? Is it how they fidget or where they look when they answer? Deception gives itself away. The giveaways may not be obvious. You may have to know exactly what you're looking for, but only the truth holds firm. Christopher J.H. Wright says it this way in his book, false gods fail. False gods fail. That is their only truth. The apostle Paul he knew this. Paul knew that in order for the church to embody, uphold, and be changed by the truth, as Troy urged us last week, Timothy and the church at Ephesus would need to discern deceptions tells. How can you tell, Timothy? How can you tell between a false teaching and truth that leads to godliness? How can you tell between demonic doctrine and truth that sets people free in Jesus Christ? How can you tell the difference? Forget Timothy for a second. How can you tell the difference? How do you discern the truth? Here in chapter four, Paul is highlighting a specific false teaching that's being spread in Ephesus. There were pagan cults in the city that were perpetuating a lifestyle that rejected the value of the material world, was rejecting the value of God's created Order. We could take time to dive into that teaching, but I actually think 
Paul is modeling to, to Timothy how to spot the imposter, how to point out the false teaching in his context. Mars Hill, if we ever needed to know how to discern the truth of Jesus Christ, it's today. Troy said it last week, not all truth sets free, especially now when some are either purposefully subjecting themselves or accidentally surrounded by false truths that have been twisted with the click of a computer mouse, tainted by greed, jealousy, and fear that's funneled through our radio stereos or our TV stations. There may not be a more important time to be equipped to tell the difference between deception and the truth that actually sets people free. In these eight verses, I see Paul training a young leader, Timothy, how to tell the difference. He encourages Timothy, both directly and in by how he is communicating to him indirectly to test three things that I want to bring before us this morning to equip us as the church in 2022 and how to tell the difference. The first thing that Paul does is he points to the clarity of the Holy Spirit. This past summer, I got a text from a friend and this is what the text said. Mm -hmm. I couldn't really tell what she was trying to say at the sweet, sweet hour of 6.51 in the morning. Because as you can see, it wasn't very clear. There are dancing twins in the middle of it. Was my response supposed to be something like, okay, I'll be right over to join you? Right off the bat, Paul says a lot when he writes in the first four to five words of the chapter, depending on your translation. The Spirit clearly says, Let's stop right here. With very few words, Paul is introducing one of the roles of the Holy Spirit. In case the church at Ephesus had forgotten, because this is only the second time Paul has mentioned the Spirit in this whole book or letter so far. The first time was a couple verses above at the end of chapter 3. In case the church had forgotten, in case we in 2022 have forgotten, the Holy Spirit speaks. Full stop. If the Trinity were a recipe, I sometimes think that the church today is guilty of this breakdown. We'll include one cup of the Father, we'll pray to God the Father, we'll sing songs to God the Father, we'll include one cup of the Son, 
We ask for things in Jesus' name when we pray. We proclaim the red letters of the Bible. We come to the table to receive the meal that he sets before us. But then it's like the spirit is a pinch of salt. If there has been a bastardization of the Spirit's role in our personal formation or our communal lives, one way we might be able to tell is if we don't really know where or how the Spirit speaks. If we rewind to John 14, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of what? Truth. The, in the message version, it says the godless world. The godless world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you, but you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. In you. Mars Hill, Jesus' true disciples have the spirit of truth inside of them. Paul is assuming that the church at Ephesus knows that one of the ways the spirit of truth actively helps is to speak and when the Spirit speaks, the Spirit only speaks truthfully and clearly. Paul lays a foundation. This is not based on his own inklings or best guesses, but he, he sets a foundation based on the Spirit's clear and truthful witness. In moments of confusion in our world, or perhaps in our everyday lives. Do you regularly ask, not the Fox News or CNN anchor, not your favorite podcast host or social media influencer, not your bestie or your Facebook friend who you've never met, but do you regularly ask the Holy Spirit's opinion? In his book, Gordon T. Smith says this, when faced with a key issue or decision, we should ask, how is the Spirit taking the ancient text as the baseline for all that we consider? And how does the church's tradition find expression today through the work of the Spirit? It means, he says, that the experience of the Spirit is a dynamic, which means it has movement, it moves, is a dynamic source for guidance and discernment along with scripture and tradition. It matters how we encounter the Spirit, church. 
But Paul, this is just the first four words, mind you. We have a long ways to go. Second, Paul points to the character of the leader. Paul has some pretty spicy words, if you were to ask me, uh, to describe the leaders of these pagan cults. In, in no lack of terms, he calls them hypocritical liars. That's pretty punchy. Hypocritical liars. He says that through these individuals come deceiving spirits, lowercase s, and things taught by demons. I caught Susie when she got to the demons word, and she paused a little bit. She said, oh, demons? Yes, demons. Because remember, Ephesians 6, the same church that Paul is writing to here in 1 Timothy, if you go to Ephesians 6, he says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the power of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. If we think we are only fighting flesh, we have already failed. A disciple cannot discern against that which he or she does not believe exists. So church, might part of the discernment come in you asking the Holy Spirit to clearly show you where are there demonic forces at play, not in the fleshly sense, but in the unseen realm, and where is God trying to allow the darkness to come into the light of this world in real time? This is a real point of measurement that Paul is setting before Timothy. Paul is seeing the pagan leaders in Ephesus, as one scholar puts it, finding allies with hypocritical liars. And one characteristic of the hypocritical liars in his midst are that their consciences are seared. Anybody else think steak the first time they heard that? Because I sure did. Brunch, anyone? To sear means to burn or scorch the surface of something with sudden, intense heat. In the Greek, it's to cauterize. And oftentimes that's used as a medical term when there's a wound and you need to uh, sear something, to apply heat to it, to disallow infection from spreading even further. But in this instance, for the false teachers, it's not their flesh that has been burned. It's their consciences and their moral decision-making. Their consciences have been seared, which means they have lost all sensitivity. They've been hardened because of their repeated submission to partnership with evil. A seared conscience cannot change course and follow the downward path of Christ. A seared conscience doesn't know how to recognize when a turning is necessary. 
A seared conscience can admit, cannot admit when, when it is wrong. When it comes to our leaders of movements, of organizations, which aspect of their character matters most? I'm not asking which aspect of their character should matter most. I'm asking which aspects of their character do matter most. Paul would likely say that it's not enough to ask for polish, charisma, woo, and experience. Paul would likely say it's not enough to check the box of ideological alignment and the appearance of unshakable strength. He gave the list of what we should look for at the beginning of chapter 3, 3 verse 9. A leader must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. You can tell the difference because a leader who's operating in the spirit of truth operates in the posture of Christ's humility. They can both admit what is wrong and change course toward goodness. Is this the way we discern our leaders today? Including our church leaders. What if, what if, instead of deciding based on someone else's slander and smear, based on pedigree and polish, what if we examined for a conscience of humility? I actually think that would make things harder. But what if? I don't know the answer, just putting it out there. Finally, Paul asks Timothy to examine something about himself. He looks at the conviction of the disciple. There are two types of people in this world. There are people who refuse to tell you when you have something stuck in their teeth. And then there are your real friends. Paul says to Timothy, be a real friend. Paul counters the false teaching with what's true in verse 4, but then he says something that I cannot stop thinking about. He says in verse 6, if, it's a condition, it's conditional, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister. Nourished, nourished, I'm thinking of that steak, nourished, filled, made whole, satisfied by the truths of the faith. That phrase, to point out, it wasn't encouraging Timothy to demand a strong response. Paul wasn't asking Timothy to command this from the church. In the Greek, it actually means more like to suggest or to place under for consideration. It's interesting because when we consider Timothy's role and what might happen next, Timothy 
could bash the pagan leaders in their beliefs. Or he could ignore those false beliefs altogether and simply encourage the church to keep conducting their internal affairs in a godly manner. But Paul, if you look closely, is asking Timothy to measure the value of his ministry by both. He's asking Timothy to be a good friend, to put his conviction on display by overtly pointing out deception and offering what D. Guthrie calls a positive answer to the negative doctrine. How can you tell the truth? It doesn't just leave you in darkness, nor does it refuse to address it. The truth is soberly aware of deception's destruction. And the truth courageously meets it with the truth of Jesus Christ. To actually live that conviction out, Paul further instructs Timothy in two ways. He says, there's some things you gotta trash, you gotta trash it. Here are some things you should have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales, he mentions. And that causes me to have to ask us here today, what are the godless myths and the old wives' tales that threaten the truth today? Christ did not come for us to proclaim conspiracy. Neither did Christ come for us to proclaim complete, consequentless autonomy. Have nothing to do with them, would be Paul's exhortation. But he doesn't just say, here's what you have to leave behind. He also says, there's some things you got to trash, but then you also have to train up. This is how you solidify your conviction to the church. Because Paul knows that godliness takes effort. Paul, so he uses this athletic imagery here because he knows his audience. In Hellenized towns, the gymnasium was the center of civic life. Physical training was important in sports. So he says, do away with this, but then train up in godliness. Train up in your spiritual disciplines. Train up in your understanding. If you're running a marathon, as Kyle Lake has and will about to be doing again this upcoming year. He just ran the half this morning, folks, and he's here today. So Kyle, congratulations on the half. As Kyle knows, and as any one of us who've ever run more than 100 meters knows, you don't just one day wake up and run 26.2. Maybe some of you can. I can't. I don't think I want to. The point is, there are months of training building up distance over periods of time. There are foods you start eating more of. There are foods you start eating less of because you know that you are training for endurance of a race that's going to require so much more of you. So Paul uses this, this imagery and he says, all of this physical preparation that you might do, 
is of some value. It's not nothing, but it's of limited value in this world. He says, train yourself in godliness. And what that tells me is that godliness in your training doesn't necessarily, it doesn't save you. Your godliness doesn't save you. Because the training itself isn't the truth, but it leads you to it. It leads you deeper into it. And not only does that training have value for now and the life to come, but he's acknowledging that the disciple should exert as much effort at least as he or she would spend training for their sporting event. What would your life tell us that you're training for? When you examine how you spend your energy, where you place your time. If we were to take a camera and follow you around at the disciplines you've placed in your life, the rhythms that you've introduced, what would it tell us you're training for? What are you training for? We've been asking this question over this series, what kind of church are we going to be, Mars Hill? And in a minute, I actually want to pray for you in each one of these three areas because we trust that the Spirit is moving even right now. But when we think of what kind of church we're going to be, let us be a church that knows how to point to Jesus, not the deception of other imposters. A church that knows the clarity of the Holy Spirit's voice. A church that looks for the humility of Christ in our midst. A church that discerns the difference with holy conviction. The courage to leave some things behind and the discipline to step into the training of godliness. I want to pray over us now. Because I know that for some of us, we couldn't get past point one. Perhaps you're here this morning or watching online and you don't know if there was ever a time that you clearly heard what the Spirit said. Might we be so bold as to ask for the Spirit to speak to you this morning? Some of us are convicted. We feel something on the inside of us because the word of the Spirit has cut something open in us. And perhaps it's cut and it says, you know what? the ways that you've been evaluating other people's character isn't how I've asked you to. We're gonna pray for you this morning. Pray grace over you. Pray that we all together would choose a different way. And then finally, some of you say, I don't know that I've actually shown my conviction to anyone. I don't know that I've taken up what it means to be training in godliness. I don't know if I've ever had the courage to leave something behind, to do away with old wives' tales and godless myths. So really, really quickly, before we dine together, I want to pray over you. And in this moment of prayer, the invitation is to freedom. Because the truth sets 
people free. And I acknowledge right now that this might be very uncomfortable for some of us who grew up in traditions where you don't move, you don't blink, you barely even breathe. But there is freedom here. And let me say also, the Holy Spirit doesn't mean this hyper-emotional experience has to come over you. It just means that you're listening intently for the voice. So whatever that looks like for you, whether that's standing, whether that's opening your hands for some of us, that means kneeling. I invite you to take that posture now as I pray and before we eat. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I thank you for this, this gathering of my brothers and sisters. Lord, we come before you this morning, understanding, maybe just a little bit more, that you choose to speak to us. And what a gift that that is. Lord, you want us to discern between what is true in this world and what is fake, what is false. So God, first I pray over my brothers and sisters who right now are longing, yearning on the inside for a fresh encounter with your Holy Spirit. I pray that for those who ask God, you would reveal yourself. You would speak true words to the lies that they've been holding on to. You would shine light in the darkest places where they've let no one else in. God, I pray that you would speak clearly and undeniably right now in Jesus' name. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who right now might confess that they have been elevating worldly characteristics above those that are marked by your humility. God, I pray that you would give them courage and a decisive yes to step into what it means to look towards others, perhaps even inside themselves, with a posture through a lens of humility. God, for consciences that are seared, God, would you soften them now in your name. And finally, God, I pray for those who might say that, yes, there's something that I need to leave behind. There are myths and tales that have nothing to do with you, God, and we repent we confess that we have gotten wrapped up in the things that you would not say. We would agree with the things that you would not ordain. So God, would you give us the courage to leave those things behind right now, to let them go, and to spend our energies and our efforts here in this life, training up in godliness, Lord. Would you enliven imaginations now Give fresh creativity now. Help us have a vision for what it means to say yes to you, to point to the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.
So brothers and sisters, as we eat together, I say the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. So in a spirit of thanksgiving, would you pray with me now? How right and a good and a joyful thing at all times and in all places to give thanks to you, God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Therefore, we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak as we eat. We pray that your sweet clarity would prick our hearts, that we would hear things that perhaps we were not open to hearing before, that as we eat, you would nourish us on your truth. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Whenever you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took the cup. And in the same way, he said, take this and drink. For this is the new covenant, the new promise in my blood. Whenever you drink, do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink of this cup, you proclaim, you proclaim the truth in my death, my burial, my resurrection until I come again. So together, church, Oftentimes we rush into this last piece, but we proclaim the truth that is also the mystery of our faith. Because the spirit is clear, but sometimes the spirit is one that we cannot contain. These mysteries are sometimes too big for us to put in our understanding. And so we proclaim the mystery of our faith in faith together. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. All is ready. In the aisles, if you've not been with us before, as you are ready, you can rise and dine. We have gluten-free elements. We also have in the back prayer walls. Our staff would be honored to pray with or for you. We do so every Tuesday. So allow the freedom of the truth, the freedom of the Spirit of God to lead you as we feast together. Receive who you are now, the body of Christ. <laughs> 